I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. Science and religion, the ultimate standoff. It's hard to imagine two more dichotomous extremes, right? Well, maybe not. Maybe these age-old rivals have much more in common than we have been led to believe. Maybe the mythologies that make up religion have nestled in them some deeper truths. Maybe science is a mythology of its own. Do the two not ultimately attempt to answer the same underlying questions? How was the universe created? How did life on Earth begin? How does our consciousness work? What is morality? Regardless of our personal beliefs, it's hard to deny that both science and religion are extremely captivating. But whereas the mythologies of religion have been refined to perfection, its stories inducted into sacred canons, crafted into bestsellers, science has been left to the scientists. The mythologies of science have been and are still being written in dry, technical, unapproachable language, bereft of any poetic prose that will both enchant the reader and do justice to the vast knowledge scientists possess in 2018. This ambitious mission is exactly what it seems Dr. Oren Harmon took upon himself to accomplish in his new book, Evolutions, 15 Myths That Explain Our World. Dr. Harmon is a professor in Barilan University, where he's the chair of the graduate program in science, technology, and society. He studied in Harvard and received his PhD with distinction from Oxford University. His fields of expertise include the history and philosophy of biology, the theory of revolution, the evolution of altruism, the cultural history of science, and much, much more. Harmon's works have been featured in Science, Nature, The New York Times, The Economist, and many other honorable platforms. Professor Oren Harmon joins two nice Jewish boys today to talk about his own mythology of science. This podcast is made in collaboration with The Jewish Journal. So are you basically saying science is just another story? Or am I putting words in your mouth? Just a little bit. <laughs> Just a little bit. No, I am saying that science is a story uh, in this sense. Um, you know, it gives names to things, uh-huh. and then it hypothesizes. And a hypothesis is a kind of story. Uh, you can't just take data and throw it into a scientific paper and publish it. It you know, doesn't work that way. You have to have a story about that data, a certain hypothesis. And and so sci- scientists tell stories, except the difference is that it's a form of competitive storytelling, which is based on a method which has been honed over hundreds of years, which is called the scientific method. And so there's a consensus in the scientific community am- among scientists about what kinds of stories you can tell and what kinds you can't, and, and, and what are the means that allow you to tell a story in a way that doesn't really exist in fiction uh-huh. uh, in the same way. What so, do you mean stories that you can't tell? Well, the, the, you know, you have to use uh, the scientific method in order to make a point in science. Which and is proof and... Yeah, conjectures, refutations, that's what... You know, the, okay. the, the famous Austrian philosopher Karl Popper called it conjectures and refutations. So if you make a claim that cannot be refuted, 
that's not a scientific uh, claim. So What's for instance, so for instance, you know, if you say to me, "I saw a unicorn yesterday," I can't refute that because I I've I've never uh, no, I saw a pink unicorn yesterday. I don't know. I've never seen a unicorn. If you say I saw a six-legged Clydesdale horse, then I can probably refute that. Um, but so one is a scientific claim, one isn't. You have to be able to refute a claim for it to be scientific. That's one way of thinking of of what a scientific claim is. There's there there's a lot of criticism of that notion too. Some people don't believe in it, but. Unicorns. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I believe in unicorns. Don't yeah, you? I saw both of those yesterday. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so it's, it's a method which is based on a kind of reasoning which has, which has rules of its own. Um, it's, you can't say about science that anything goes in the same way that you can say about, you know, say poetry or short story writing or novel writing, you know, any kind, any type of fiction. So is it kind of storytelling with uh, stricter rules? Yeah, and, and also a kind of consensus among, amongst a community, which mm-hmm. is the community which decides about, uh, about whether a type of knowledge is legitimate or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that functions differently in the scientific realm. Do you believe that that scientists, I mean, as as they play that function of storyteller that you're describing, do they ever get carried away? In, in, in I mean, do we have examples where scientists got carried away in their storytelling and maybe veered away from science? Well, I mean, you know, some of the truths of science are so mind blowing that you know. You don't have to get carried away. I mean, the, the the actual, the actual stories that are told within science are sometimes are, are just you know crazier than any than anything that you could have thought of. Um, like the Big Bang. For yeah, for instance, like the Big Bang, or you know the the motion, the notion of the multiverse. You Which know? is why many people don't buy the story. I guess it's, it's too just too, to it's too incredible fathom. to think that you know, uh, you know, more than fourteen billion years ago there was a Big Bang. And our universe was birthed on a bubble, and that bubble may be one of ten to the five hundred different bubbles that were birthed by independent big bangs, which can never know about the existence of the other big bangs. And all this based on um, a notion of strings that exist in hundreds of dimensions, which are way too small to ever see and which no one has ever measured in any way but mathematically it helps to solve a number of problems and so it's been it's been you know put up as a theory that mm-hmm. that that might you know might describe reality and so um you know some some of the some of the ideas that we find advanced in science are just extremely mind blowing do scientists get carried away? Yeah, sure. Just scientists are human beings. They get carried away. Yeah. They do bad science. But some of the some of what is considered kind of mainstream or you know, you know, well respected science is itself just mind blowing. Also, before we get to the actual book, it feels that there is a gray area, and that in the common knowledge of the common people, us, let's say, sometimes it's blurry because some of the things that science tells us have been proved like i don't know evolution but some are perceived as proven 
And yet, when we when you dive, you find out that these are still only theories, which maybe will never be proved 100%, and they are just the most accepted theories, like the Big Bang, like how life was created on Earth. Am I, am, do I yeah, get I mean, this uh, I right? Th I think that what's important to remember about science always is that the truths of science are provisional. That's how science works. That's not like a defect in the scientific method. That's actually how the method works. It wouldn't work otherwise. And so, um, you know, for a thousand years, the smartest people looking into the heavens were sure that there had to be epicycles that regularized the motions of the heavenly bodies. And for hundreds of years, the smartest people looking in the heavens again were certain that there had to be something they called the ether to carry the waves of light. And um, today we know that there is no ether and that there are no epicycles. Those notions have been refuted. That notion was, um, uh, was right for a time, for its time, and it helped explain reality for the people who, 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 uh, who, who believed in it. Um, but um, those reality, the, the way we describe reality is very much attuned or influenced by the waters in which, in which we swim and the air that we imbibe in ways that are not always conscious to us. And so we would like to think of our scientific thinking as extremely objective based on, a, as I said, a method of reason and so forth, conjectures, refuta refutations. But scientists, just like everyone else, are human beings, and they use our human language uh, to describe their theories. Uh, that human language is extremely sensitive to the times. It invariably employs metaphor. Um, what do you mean by that? that? Well, think about the brain, okay? So okay. in the 16th century, the brain was... Uh, a system of hydraulics in miniature encased in our skull. In the 17th century, it became a very complex mechanical clock. In the 19th century, it was a telegraph switchboard. These were the metaphors that were used. Into the 20th century, it became a, a neural network, and today wow. we often think of it as, as a quantum computer. Yeah. So each one of these brains was, in fact, a different entity of which we could ask different questions and for that reason we were able to produce different answers now those metaphors again were very much tied to the times we spoke about the epicycles a second ago so the epicycle was an, was kind of birthed by a christian ideal of harmony uh which if you go back to the middle ages and you spoke to someone you know just you know in, in a village on the street they would know they, they wouldn't know what you were talking about, what you meant if you asked them about the relationship between music, harmony, epicycles, and so forth. Those meanings are lost to us. When you time. say epicycles, you mean like the stars move in a, in a in determined these, pattern? In these imagined circles that, were, that, that, okay. that, 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 that determined the orbit of the heavenly bodies. Mm -hmm. You know, Aristotle, one of the greatest thinkers of all time, he said that women have fewer teeth in their mouth than men. <laughs> Couldn't you just count it? <laughs> there you go. So you say to yourself, Aristotle, why didn't you just open your wife's mouth for God's sake? But it had to Maybe do... Maybe preferred boys. 
Mm, I don't think so. He, you know, uh, well, I don't know. Maybe he, he was did. One but... of the few Greeks who uh, <laughs> who didn't. He had a wife, and he could have asked her to open her mouth whether he preferred boys or not. And you know, he's one of the great scientists of all times. But it had to do with notions of the diff- differences between men and women that were ensconced in the culture, and uh, and and in ways that make us really see differently. I mean, think about it. You, could, you know. They were actually, he said, there were actually fewer teeth in the mouth of women, and he couldn't see that he was wrong. And so these cultural trappings, these, um, are extremely powerful. And what's what's remarkable about them is that we're often not aware of them. It's like you know that story, the David Foster Wallace story about the two fishies, who are who are kind of um, just kind of uh, swimming in a stream, and they come across an older and wiser fish. And he says to them, top of the morning, lads, how's the water this morning? And they continue swimming, and then one looks at the other and says, what water is he talking about? <laughs> so that's sort of our predicament. That's, that's where we are. Um, and it's especially kind of uh, emphatic when it comes to science because we do think that we're describing in a very literal, objective, you know, reason-based way what we see. And yet, um, you know, scientists are human like anyone else. So is there any certainty? Like, is there any level of, uh, is there, do we know anything for certain or is everything bound to change? In there are f- mathematical certainties in, you know, within closed logical systems, but even those, you know, as was shown some 50 years ago, are, are prone to exceptions as, as, as Gödel showed. Um, um, think about it this way, you know, let's take this example. Maybe it's a good way to talk about it. Today, much of our understanding of ourselves um, stems from what we call genes. Mm -hmm. Okay? Wherever you go, you meet a gene, right? Mm -hmm. Gene for motherhood, a gene for homosexuality, a gene for timidity. There's a gene for everything. Right. Now, I would venture to say, I don't know when it'll happen, maybe 50 years from now, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, that there will be no gene. So cherish your genes because they'll soon be gone. <laughs> what do I mean by that? A gene is a concept which was born historically as a kind of heuristic. And then it was, when Watson and Crick came around, they reified it. They showed what a gene actually, they, 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 they discovered the structure of DNA. And now it was possible to say, okay, well, a gene is a stretch of the, a contiguous stretch of DNA, which encodes for, for, for a protein. Except that ever since the 50s, what science has been doing is proving all of the exceptions to that rule. And it turns out that the rule is the exception. <laughs> okay? So genes come from all over the genome. One protein is made by many, many, many genes. The genes are edited. Um, um, and there isn't really a gene for anything. So for, you know, like the, the, the you know, Mendel looked at genes for wrinkled peas or genes for you know, green versus yellow peas, but there isn't a gene for a green pea. There's a gene that plays a role in synthesizing chlorophyll, which happens to be green and so forth. So when you drill down biologically, you see there isn't, the, you know, the speak, the gene for speak is actually a metaphor. It's not, it doesn't describe really what genes do. That's not how they work. It's a very, very complex interaction between a lot of different actors. But we've decided to sort of prioritize one of those actors, which we call the gene. 
So because our mind always searches for for, for a story, for a story, and for structures that That's are right. simple. There you go. But the more we drill inside, we find out that maybe everything is too big for us to even perceive. Right. But what I'm trying to say is, so these are all stories, right? Mm-hmm. But just because they're stories doesn't mean that they're useless. So because you know, stories can be extremely wonderful stories that work, that actually work. So even stories that, you know, that, ta- that have taken us to the moon or that help us understand what our uh, predilection for disease, you know, th- those things actually work for us, just like the epicycles work for the, for, 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 for the Ptolemaic um, um, astronomers. What they do you mean work. They work? Ex- for us What's the best example they, they help us explain they help us understand reality in ways that are actionable so you know but just to an extent well no I mean they, they again there's you know um, there's a profession there's a profession today called uh, a genetic uh, uh, engineer not a genetic energy a, a, you know, someone who gives advice in the, in the hospital a genetic uh, uh, right uh, advisor yeah it's not advisor consultant I'm, Nah, but I'm blank. Anyway, you know, you know, we yeah. know what we're talking about. Right. Who will tell you, you know, more or less what are, what are your chances based on your, you know, your your family history and so forth of you know having breast cancer or something like that? And people can make informed choices based on this information. So mm-hmm. the information is not useless. Right. It's useful. So I want to ask you, Professor Herman, uh, all these notions. First of all, what, what, what is the book about? And then all these notions, how did they lead you to write this book? Right. So the book, at one level, the most basic level, is just a retelling of the great saga of the birth of the universe and the evolution of life on planet Earth based on our most current cutting-edge understanding of cosmology and astrophysics and biochemistry and genetics and neurobiology and linguistics and brain science and of course evolutionary theory very modest um well it's mission you took i don't know it's i i I find it all so interesting you know it's just you know i wanted to but so at one level it's just a retelling of the saga but as you said in in the intro not in in science speak but rather in short palatable lyrical stories that you can think of as you know you can go into bed at night and think of them as kind of like a chocolate that you unwrap mm-hmm. in a very intimate way yeah you do part of the book is almost structured in a poem it's like some i'm uh, not iambic pentameter but in yeah. certain like ways <laughs> some of it is yeah it's actually like poems right it's so, all all that it's missing is a rhyming scheme so if you're interested in you know where did time come from or how did the solar system uh, come about or you know what the moon is or how life began on earth and then began to evolve in ways that created sex and vision and flight and consciousness and language then the book will in very short and lyrical stories will help you understand where we are right now in terms of our scientific theories about on these matters so so at one level it's that's just what the book is 
at a deeper kind of philosophical level, it's an attempt to better understand the relationship between science on the one hand and myth on the other. Because all cultures have always used myth to approach our greatest existential mysteries. Things like, where did we come from? Where are we going? What's the meaning of all this? What is motherhood? What is death? Uh, what is jealousy? What is hope? What is truth? And these are very difficult questions, and they don't always have easy solutions, and they may not even have solutions at all. On the other hand, science, modern science comes along 16th, 17th century based on things that happened before, but as we know it in its form that it, that it took in, in the modern era, and said, no, we're going to replace all these stories with fir a firmer kind of knowledge based on a, a, an objective method of reason. And, and so, off the f you know, on, on the face of it, it looks like science and mythology are two very different enterprises, even, even maybe opposite enterprises. But as we've been saying, when you drill down a little bit you know, further and you look at science more closely, you see that it's created by human, being with, human beings with all their foibles, their hidden agendas and ideologies, human beings that use language, which invariably employs metaphor, that, ha that is created uh, within a particular social context in institutions that have a politics and all those kind of things. And so you learn that myths and science are different in important ways, but they're also similar in surprising ways. And the book really tries to juxtapose the two, to basically use our modern-day idiom of science in order to hark back to the age-old mysteries that all world mythologies have always dealt with, in order to try to see whether the language that we use today, the scientific language, can help us look at things like hope and motherhood and truth in new and, and kind of surprising ways. Mm -hmm. So that's what that's what I'm trying to do in the book. And um, you do it, it. You do it pretty well. It was it was it was a lot of fun to write. Really, <laughs> it, it was a lot like of fun to write. You had a lot of fun writing I, I, it. It was so much fun to write this book. Um, I mean, I've I've been dreaming about this book for years. Because I have this, I'm a very conflicted, you know, I, I have a very, very kind of reason-driven side, uh, scientific kind of, and then a very artistic um, um, and sort of humanistic side, and always was made it difficult to make decisions in life about all kinds of things, like professions and, and you know, and, and love and stuff like that. So in a way, this is, is my, my chance finally to bring these two together in, in one uh, in one book, and so it was really a lot of fun for me. Uh, I wonder if there's something. First of all, it's uh, it, it is an incredible book. It reads. And we'll uh, hear an excerpt. Yeah, yeah we'll hear an excerpt soon. Um, but it reads almost like a like a dream. Um, yeah. And it really is. It's beautifully I written. I felt I'm like I'm in an LSD trip. I wish someone like in the New York Times write that in the, in the in the. In the review, I felt like I was an LSD trip. <laughs> um, that's great. I'm really glad that that's how you felt. I wonder if there's something to be said uh, for, you know, because you, the way a myth comes about, and the way I guess th there's almost a uh, something that that I guess that uh, that I um, 
came to think about, I guess, when I was reading it, is the fact that there's almost a, a part of the scientific method that is in itself mythology, meaning like there is, and maybe this is exactly what you're saying, but there's like, you know, how Einstein came to general relativity. There's a moment of just like, pure imagination where you just kind of say which we see when you when when you talk about string theories which is just you know this idea that like there's these small little perpetually vibrating strings that are holding together the universe like the the what led someone to this was just jumping to a story and telling a story and or or am i maybe just oversimplifying it and is that is that process a lot more mathematical? Is there no imagination in the scientific method? No, there's an enormous amount of imagination. I mean, there's this, you know, it all started from the fact that the universe is accelerating. Yeah. And that that was a kind of paradox that the theory of, gra- you know, that gravity had to grapple with. And so and so scientists came up with this idea of of uh, dark dark energy, which is just a name that you give for something that you say must be there in order to explain what we mm-hmm. can actually observe. Yeah. And then and then with dark energy, you know, if you if you posit the strings in the multiverse, then you're able to understand the function of dark energy and the acceleration of our particular universe in a way which enhances the explanation and so and so a story builds on a story and builds on a story. And of course, you can't just, you know, you know, in a, in a scientific world, you can't just you know tell the story, and you know people will say, you know, that's a great story. You have to you have to you have to try to prove it and convince people, and in doing that, that's when you need to you know use a lot of fancy mathematics and so forth. Mm-hmm. So so it becomes more and more constricted when you have to you know when you actually have to make a claim. So it's not like I'm saying you know anyone can just tell a story. No, not at all. But there's an enormous amount of imagination that comes from ignorance. Mm-hmm. It comes from not knowing the solution to something and having to provide an explanation. So basically, Einstein maybe he wouldn't have been Einstein if he didn't possess, if he hadn't possessed the imaginative fiction storytelling abilities of George Lucas. Uh, well, right? you know, have you ever read Einstein? He's an extremely playful person in every way. Like he Einstein would much rather spend time with children than with, you know, with adults in some stuffy scientific conference. He right. was extremely curious and imaginative, wonderful, playful mind, no question. Um, so yeah, of course, there's a, a big role to be played for mm-hmm. creativity and playfulness and imagination in science. Um, so all the stiff scientists that take oh, themselves there, there too seriously. Lot, there are a lot of those, but you know, <laughs> there are a lot of stiff people in life altogether. We should all be playful. Uh, maybe I'll give an example. Sure. Um, yeah. So, so one of the myths is called motherhood. Okay. And it's about the birth of um, of the moon. So it's kind of pretty crazy like if you go into a room and you say to people you know where did the moon come from and we're in 2018 most people have no idea where the moon came from <laughs> right and in fact amazingly Nobody man la- man landed on the moon before he knew where it came from right right it's crazy wow. yeah and where the moon came from actually was from a meteor which hit hit the earth um 
and knocked a piece of the earth out of it, a meteor that was about the size of Mars. It was called Thea. It's been given the name Thea. Um, and knocked a piece of earth out of it. And then due to gravity and its sidekick angular momentum, that piece, there were actually a lot of pieces that were sort of in, in orbit, but they, they were just you know, uh, uh, um, uh, circling, circling the earth, the early earth, and they accrued, they came together. And at that early stage, the moon was much closer to the earth than it is today. And so had we been there to be able to countenance it, we'd look out into the sky, it would all be moon. And the days were only four hours long. Um, it, it, it was but you know, I, I, I have to stop you here because, because, for example, when I read this in your book, and the thing that's striking about the book is that it stimulates your curiosity like constantly. So it sent, I, I had to stop each time and go to Wikipedia and actually read about stuff uh, like how... The, so even what you describe here... As I read, it's just it hasn't been proven one hundred percent. It's the most acceptable theory of right. how the moon was created. So at the end of the book, there's there's a section called Illuminations in which I present the sources for the myths and and I invite my readers to go and you know like you did go and go and you know read more about it and see you know this is our latest understanding. Right. Right. And it'll probably change, but this is what we think today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and we believe in our science today, just like the the Greeks believed in their myths, you know, two thousand five hundred years ago. So anyway, getting back to yeah, the earth. Sorry, getting back to the earth. So, so the so when I read about this scientific, you know, the, the, this understanding of where the moon came from, it immediately like you know jumped into my mind that this is a story of, about motherhood. That you know that basically the moon is comes from the earth but isn't only the earth it's its own um and um and it's slowly moving away every hmm. year uh just like a, a kid does and so i turn the uh, so i turn the, the moon and the earth into two characters in this myth and it's the the the, the mother earth talking to uh to to the moon and uh so maybe we'll hear it I'll right read, now yeah i'll read just a, sh a short little section really short so she says to the moon I cannot stop time due to my bulging tides the ones expanding as if to greet you you're moving away now at the pace of the growth of fingernails you seem determined an inch and a half at a time to gain your independence and as you move away yearly I feel my center losing its balance my internal axis inching imperceptibly towards chaos, my spin slowing down. I comfort myself. As the bard has written, it is the very error of the moon. She comes more nearer earth than she want and makes men mad. And so perhaps it is for humanity's sake that you drift. <coughs> You want some water? Maybe I'll show the mime Oh, in the Shamaim Shilha.
No, I think you should leave that part. Should I just go back to the um, yeah. where yeah, I stopped? Yeah. yeah, the beginning of the sentence. <coughs> And so perhaps no. still don't have my voice. That's that. What is Speaking of parenthood. <laughs> The little bugs that get into kids. Holy shit. <coughs> they can knock you out. <coughs> Proper. <coughs> and so perhaps it is for humanity's sake that you drift, not a child's rebellion. But then again, maybe it is your dark side, opaque to me. I am too young to know and too old to find out. Incredible. Um, and that's, that really is kind of, uh, first of all, that was one of my favorite parts of the book, the, uh, the moon bit. Yeah. Um, because it really, I mean, there's something so beautiful in that metaphor that's, it's like, it, it's like you, you re, it's one of those things you read and you're like, God, that's exactly, that's, that's just it. To the point. That's it. Like, you know what I mean? Where you feel like that's well, something you. that you've been thinking but haven't been thinking forever that like all of a sudden it's like one of those moments where you realize something that's been so that's so clear and it's beautiful and it really is the whole book is like that where it's it gives this side the science that that you know i i guess is lacking in schools because today you know to go into science you have to be very technical and very you can't see it in this beautiful uh, storytelling way and I really think that that's that's an incredible example how did I mean you you just read you just stumbled upon this story and it just came to you yeah I mean I, all my life I've been sort of searching for connections between philosophy science um, and art in a way you know just mm -hmm. be beauty um, and my real dream was to be a musician and you know, I sing in a, in a choir, but I, you know, I don't, I, I didn't become a musician really. And so for me, writing is kind of a form of music making. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I just, in, in my writing and particularly in this book, I try to, um, connect the, you know, the different, um, loves of, of, of my life. Um, is it something you try and, and, uh, <coughs> and, uh, uh, promoting your students to, to write in this way or is it I mean when they is are the courses that you teach more scientific in a way um, I tell my students I teach I teach writing t uh, as well um, to my students like a course a writing course uh -huh. you're like the cool professor in Barilan University right <laughs> <coughs> like um, the dead poet society professor <laughs> we have a lot of fun in my program that's true um, but my you know my 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 position is 
there's no such thing as academic writing and and popular writing. There's mm-hmm. writing where the reader wants to turn the page and where the reader, you know, has no interest whatsoever in turning the page. And this notion of academic writing is something that is a crutch that was was invented by a lot of academics who don't know how to write. And somehow we've all been duped into believing that this is some kind of law that we have to follow. And so, yeah, I tell my students, look, first of all, find something that's a passion for you. Because otherwise there's no reason, you know, to be here. And then write about it like, you know, you, you like you care and that you really are actually talking to the world rather than to four, you know, esoteric experts somewhere on a board. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I definitely, I definitely encourage my students to, to write in ways that are, that speak to the world and speak to regular people. And when I write, I, I think of sort of like, you know, a, a really clever, curious 14 year old, mm-hmm. um, who doesn't, you know, who's not a professional and I want to open his mind and, or her mind and, you know, have them, you know, really say, wow. But I also, you know, but at the same time, the greatest challenge is to do that and also to be relevant to, you know, to colleagues or to Nobel Prize winners and stuff like that. And that, that, that kind of challenge, the writing challenge, which is an intellectual and an artistic challenge, seems like, you know, such a, such a more interesting challenge than the regular way that we write about science. Is there a myth that you left out from the book? There are about a hundred of them. At least five like hundred of them that you cherish oh um, you know so i I wanted to choose different themes you know um, and in some sense the you know uh, it's a little bit arbitrary which story I chose to and fastened it to a theme like say jealousy or sacrifice or hope you know I could have chose I could have chosen um, an infinity of stories mm-hmm. uh, what helped me kind of constrict myself was that there's there's a timeline there's there's a chronology to this book it begins with the beginning of time with the Big Bang and it kind of ends with the evolution of the human mind so that created a kind of timeline so there were certain kind of you know um, you know, limits to wh- where I could go with this. But it, within those limits, um, it, you know, that was the game. That was the creative game for me. And so I, I, I thought of many different myths for motherhood and many different, and, and I've probably forgotten most of them because uh, I, you know, because once I found one that I really like spoke to me, then I jumped in. Uh, but I, I am thinking of writing a kind of a sequel where I'll just, you know, look for, for, for new myths and maybe some of the same themes will come up again. They're very, you know, basic human um, themes, the kinds of things that we know in our gut are crucial to our humanity, but mm-hmm. also sort of perceive in our brains mm-hmm. that we'll never entirely plumb, never entirely understand. You get this sense from reading it that, like, these these emotions stem from something that's so primal, but not primal in like monkeys or even like primal in like rocks. Like you give this sense that like the, 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 and I don't know if there's actually any scientific claim behind it, but you give the sense that like love and jealousy is actually rooted in, in, in like heat and, and water and like, 
Well, you start, elements. You started by saying that, you know, starting with the juxtaposition of science and religion. And what I would say is that even before religion, religion comes from the Latin ligare. Ligare means to bind. So from the get-go, there's something very functional about religion. Religion, you know, binds people together. And morality is something that is very, you know, very much tied to its context, to its times. You know, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of perfectly pa captured by its times and, um, and uh, imprisoned by them. Myths, on the other hand, are extremely fundamental, even before function and utility uh, and time. They sort of, um, if you're looking for solace, maybe it's better to go to religion. In myths, there isn't always solace. It's more about just the awe that we experience, you know, perceiving mm -hmm. the universe around us. Um, it's ex it's extremely raw. It's extremely raw um, and and fundamental and 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 um, collective. It's and not just a, it's not institutionalized by like one person or one or power. It's like a group thing kind of thing. And yet we experience it as individuals in a very very strong way. You know, we, we each of us knows what it means to you know look up at the skies. One you know. And, and just let your brain wander and, 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 and try to think about, try to take in this, the enormity of it. We, we live in finite bodies, but we can, we, can, we can imagine anything, including infinity, and that's kind of our tragedy, but it's also everything that counts. You know, it's way, it, what makes, makes us human. Mm -hmm. um, that's what's special about us. So, um, the book is called Evolutions, 15 Myths That Explain Our World. And if this conversation didn't make you run and get it, I don't know what will, because I think we build, built it up really nicely. So, um, where can people get the book? The easiest place to get it is on Amazon, obviously, or, you know, all the, all the other uh, uh, places on the net where you can buy books these days, and there are many of them. Uh, and then it's in the bookstores. It just, uh, we launched in New York about three weeks ago or something like that. Is uh, it an audio book? It's an audio book, too. Uh, I myself did it because it's such a personal book that I, I wasn't going to let an actor do it. Um, and then we launch again in England. There'll be an English version uh, in November, but um, but it's it's out there and you can find it in the stores or or on Amazon. It's yeah. like guys, you're recording a different version for British English. No, no, no. The, the, what do you mean by English? The British? English written version. The, the written version. So it's a di so in 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 America it came out with Farrar Strauss Giroux, That's a publisher. Oh, and I then see. in England it comes out with a different publisher called Head of Zeus, which. Yeah. It's kind of wow. ironic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. And you are on social media. Uh, I, so I'm not a great social media person, uh, but my wife was kept kept on telling me that for the book and this, and that you need to get on. So so she created a Twitter account for me. I haven't tweeted one tweet, but I guess <laughs> I I think I have. A, uh, I I sound like such an old guy. <laughs> I guess I have a Twitter account, and yeah, I'm on Facebook. But um, what's the Twitter account? Good question. Probably Oren Harmon. Okay, know, well, no guys, follow, follow Oren's tweetless Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, but I'm easy to find, and I, I love it when writer when readers write to me. Right, you have an official website. 
I have a website, yeah, Orrin Harmon. Your Twitter is kind of like the universe before there was a, <laughs> the first tweet, the big tweet. Okay, I'll try to remember that. <laughs> and uh, before we go, we have a collaboration with the Jewish Journal, which is a Jewish news outlet. They're based in Los Angeles. You should really check them out at jewishjournal.com for plenty of interesting content. And guys, we uh, do this on our free time and we accept donations. So if you guys want to throw some cash our way, we'll gladly accept it. Um, there's a donate button at the top of the website. Thank you so much, Owen. Thank Professor you. Owen, for Thank you so much. Uh, joining us. Great to talk to you guys. Good luck with the book. Thanks, It's amazing. Man. Thanks a lot. Bye.